Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I remember as we would walk out of the house, the school principal, she would remind us uh, almost on a daily basis. Remember, as you walk out of the house, walk as fast as you can. Don't look back. If you are caught, take them to your house. Don't bring them here. More people will be killed here. Less people will be killed there. It was a routine reminder that we received. And we, we understood that. It made sense to us, too. Getting an education as an Afghan girl growing up under the Taliban rule in the late 90s was dangerous business. And this was because girls were simply not allowed to be educated, period. It was illegal. Shabana Basaj Rasik knew that attending secret school was a huge risk. But her parents insisted she go regardless, even going so far as to dress her up like a boy. And it was this act of bravery that 20 years later would set in motion a movement so profound that it would save the lives of hundreds of Afghan girls. Up ahead on the show, I spoke with a remarkable woman who has devoted her life against impossible odds to the education of girls. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser. Before you learn more about Shabana's story, I want to start by giving a huge gratitude-filled shout out to our listeners. Last month, after the passing of Maya Amoyles, my friend and one of our favorite guests, we decided to have a call to action asking listeners to donate to Maya's Way the fund set up in her honor to support young women going through cancer treatment. And the response was overwhelming as an understatement. I mean, we, the emails kept flooding in and in and in $31,000. Maya's friends, Maya's family, all the Weisner listeners came together and in a week donated that much money in honor of Maya for our matching campaign. So I can't even tell you, I mean, we had chill bumps. There was like virtual high-fiving. There was tears. I think we thought maybe we would raise five, ten thousand dollars $10,000. And within days, we had hit twenty. I think within 24 hours. So it's a testament to this community. It's a testament to the power of sharing our stories and showing up for one another and certainly of Maya's incredible lasting legacy and impact. So whether you made the time to re-listen to Maya's episode, you were able to donate or simply held her in your thoughts, thank you. 
It is such a blessing to be a part of this incredible community and to have known and loved Maya. We all saw the heartbreaking footage on television, thousands of Afghanis flooding airport tarmacs, chasing after planes, desperate to leave the country they love. It's now been six months since the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. And while officials are working hard behind the scenes, day and night, to avert a major humanitarian crisis, the woman you are about to hear from today, Shabana Basaj Rasik, is putting front and center a message of hope for Afghan girls, for the future of this war-torn country, and for really anyone with the dream and the passion to persist. She is the president of SOLA, the School of Leadership Afghanistan a nonprofit dedicated to giving young Afghan girls access to quality education. I want to say that the audio on this interview is not as crisp and clear as usual. Technology will do that to you. But I don't think you will notice, or at least you will quickly be distracted, because frankly, her story and her bravery will blow you away. And I just believe you will be as moved as I am. And now, without further ado, I bring you the incredible and inspiring Shabana Basaj Rasik. Hello, Shabana, and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you for having me. Shabana, how would you introduce yourself to our listeners? My name is uh, Shabana Basij Rasikh, and I'm the co-founder and president of School of Leadership Afghanistan, or SOLA for short. And uh, SOLA is uh, Afghanistan's first and only all-girls boarding school. And we're going to cover so much today. Your life story and journey is just extraordinary with so many twists and turns. But I want to start in your early childhood. What can you tell me about the backdrop of your early years growing up in Afghanistan? Well, I was born and raised in Kabul city. I grew up in the midst of very long war in Afghanistan. When I was um, a young girl living in Afghanistan, at a time when I was supposed to start going to school, the Taliban regime took over the country in 1996 and made education for girls illegal and working outside the home for women illegal as well. My most uh, informative uh, years of my childhood were uh, growing up under the Taliban regime. Yeah. And, you know, for those who don't understand that time and place, you know, under the Taliban, women were now required to wear a burqa. So essentially covering themselves head to toe, not allowed to walk outside alone unless escorted Mm -hmm by a male. People are no longer allowed to watch TV, listen to music. Men are required to grow beards. And so much of your story is that girls were prohibited from attending school. And as you said, women are no longer allowed to work. So that is the reality of your country and really the only thing you knew to be true. But you would break through (laughs) in so many unexpected and brave ways of the constraints and confinement? I don't think I can um, take credit for that bravery or the trajectory of my childhood. I think it's all my parents. Uh, I'm just really lucky and grateful that I was born in a family that valued education 
especially for girls, so much that they decided to educate me and my sisters anyway. So yes, I for the first time, I think I find myself struggling to talk about that because it used to be for such a long time that I would talk about a Taliban regime in the past tense. We're, we're currently talking about a time period between 1996 to 2001. And now, you know, 20 years later, we're in a way back back in the same place. Well, that's fascinating, you know, that you had all these years of referencing this dark time in your past. And I get that now that you're talking about it, it is your present reality again. It is mm-hmm. if you are back where you started. And for you, especially you and many people in Afghanistan had come so far from that reality and so far from that time and space. And part of that was your, as you said, your parents' belief and commitment to education and the future of their daughters. And you would, in fact, after 1996, attend school and what that took in a country where that was a crime and you were risking your life on a daily basis required you to, I know, dress as a boy for five years and you were essentially Mm -hmm. at a secret school. But if you can set up, what does that look like? What is the reality of the school, of getting there, the day-to-day of just simply trying to go to school? Mm -hmm. I I attended a few different secret schools initially in my neighborhood. They were focused primarily on uh, educating young girls under the guise of teaching these girls how to read the Quran, which was permissible by the Taliban. And they, you know, they didn't seem to mind that. But um, the one secret school that it was a, you know, it's a big, it was a big deal. And my parents decided to dress me up as a boy and send me with my older sister so that I could be her male chaperone walking to and from the school. And uh, even as a little girl dressed as a boy, I could pass for a male chaperone to a sister who was just just about old enough uh, when the Taliban uh, took over that she was required to wear a burqa uh, when she went outside. And women were not allowed to go outside alone, so they had to be accompanied by male family members. And this was the best way that we could minimize getting any kind of attention as we went outside. And this was the best way that both of us could receive an education. And so when I talk about a secret school, I know people might think about a school, but really uh, we were walking into somebody's uh, house and in that house, there was a small living room that was dedicated to all of us. That room had no furniture, just carpet. At a, our three teachers would sit in three different corners and they had a little bit of a, a cushion to sit on. And the rest of us all packed in in the room right next to one another. We weren't part of a cohort or a grade because we all found out about secret school at different times, uh, obviously. And so we we came there at different times. And as a result, these, these were all one-on-one lessons that we received from either one of these three teachers. And, you know, as I think back, I, I do remember having a lot of fun too. I remember laughing a lot. I remember learning I don't I don't remember it being all scary at all times. I think we we did have this enormous awareness about what was at stake and what what we were risking, but it wasn't the dominant thinking on a daily basis, if that makes sense. But the day-to-day for for my sister and me 
we essentially every our our daily routine was that we could not have a routine. Uh, meaning there were days when we would leave home early in the morning or midday or early in the afternoon and coming back was never at the same time. Uh, we avoided taking the same path every day. We always covered our books in some sort of a grocery bag or hid it under her burqa. We always had some spare change with us in case we felt like we were being followed and in which case we would our instruction was to not go to the a secret school, but go to the grocery market, uh, buy some fresh vegetables and come back home. I often think about what it must have been like for my parents, especially for my mom, sending us out every day, not knowing what time we would return home or if we would return at all. So I know you grew up believing that it was normal for a girl to risk her life if she wanted to go to school and to have an education. And that you, as you just said, you thought you were being followed. You had, you know, plans to protect yourself. There's people looking out for potential attacks on the school. You are undercover in every sense of the word. I think it's important for people to understand the risk and what was at stake. So what are the things that are happening and what are the stories you are hearing about people who are taking the same risk you are and the teachers and the students who are, you know, un- under the veil, choosing education and a future for themselves? I most definitely thought it was normal. My mental image of what it meant to be a student was obviously very much informed by by that time. But at the same time, you know, I knew I was part of a group of people that didn't believe in Taliban's way of life or vision for the country. But I also knew that that was an incredibly dangerous and daring thing. I did at times feel that, you know, we were committing a crime. (laughs) It was considered one after all. We definitely would hear stories about, you know, if the Taliban were to walk in, for instance, that they could um, kill the teachers in front of us, punish our families, We heard those stories all the time. Uh, I remember as we would walk out of the house, the school principal, the woman who was the head of the household, she would remind us uh, almost on a daily basis. Remember, as you walk out of the house, walk as fast as you can. Don't look back. If you're caught, take them to your house. Don't bring them here. More people will be killed here. Less people will be killed there. It was a routine reminder that we received. And we, we understood that. It made sense to us too. It does make sense. So we've talked about the risk and that, you know, you're surrounded by families who have their girls at home and you are in fact out, you know, making the walk up to an hour with your sister to attend the secret school. And that at times you questioned your parents about, you know, begging them at times to allow you to stay home. And you shared a conversation with your father about Mm -hmm. his answer to his daughters begging and questioning if they were better off at home. Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, a few encounters when my older sister often protected me from, from really knowing what was going on. But I remember one time in particular, she was really scared as we came home. And um, I think she started basically questioning why, why we were doing all of this. And it was, it was a scary, we were both scared. And My parents said something that at that time did not make sense because I did carry this belief or thinking that 
And they were so cruel to send us off every day out into this danger just so that we could receive an education. And I didn't see really the purpose because I couldn't see what the future was. And my parents would try to reason with us and remind us that. And I've said this so many times. Uh, they would tell us, look, in, in life, we could lose everything we have. We could be forced to leave our homes. And 20 years later, they are right. This is exactly what happened to us recently. We could lose any material possession that we have. We could lose our homes to a natural disaster uh, or forced out during a war. But there's one thing that no one, by that, no one could take away from us. And that is our ability to think for ourselves. And that's our education, what's inside our head. And I don't really remember that having much of a convincing impact on me um, until after the fall of Taliban regime, uh, when I found myself attending public school for the first time. And my first day at school, uh, when I was introduced to my classmates, and I looked around and I was surrounded by a cohort of girls, majority of whom were at least six years older than I was. That was the first time my parents' words from a few years ago had an enormous impact, enormous impact on me. I read that in the visual of you as a girl and it's sinking in that all of those girls around you, six years older, that that was day one for them. And there are moments in life that have that passed. And for me, that moment hasn't passed. It started that day when I was a young girl, a classroom with girls who were six, year, six years older than I was, that moment never ended. That reality never changed. That you had had an education and that they had not. They had not. I remained in my path to study and they dropped out and got married and started families. I came home and the bar that was set for me was something else. It was, you're going to learn languages. You're going to learn English so that you can be internationally literate, not just nationally literate. You're going to take computer lessons so that you can be a student in the 21st century. And my classmates had different worries. I would come, come to school and there were different kinds of concerns. And I remember that the Taliban, six years of Taliban and the fact that the girls didn't go to secret school and they lost so much of that time weighed on them heavily and in fact shaped the trajectory of their lives very differently. I didn't need ever my parents to remind me or tell me that I needed to be grateful for what they had done. I had the environment. I had my encounters on daily basis with classmates as a reminders um, for that, but also a sense of responsibility that I felt towards uh, changing the trajectory for for girls in Afghanistan since then. And this is 2002 in the wake of 9-11. Your country, your realities, your, your opportunities is changing. And you've shared the first time you saw sort of a vibrant woman without a burqa and how that, how you experienced it. Can you share that story? Yeah, this was a post 9-11 and post fall of Taliban's first regime in fall of 2001. There was an interim government formed and an announcement was made for girls to go to the nearest public school and take a placement test to place into whatever grade they felt they were academically ready to attend. So we, we went to the nearest public school and the principal of that 
public school. She stood in the middle of the school courtyard, uh, surrounded by a sea of blue burqas, uh, students wearing burqas. And I remember even after the fall of Taliban regime, for quite some time, a lot of young women, as they were going out of the house, uh, they wore a burqa because they were so scared uh, that they might be attacked by the Taliban or, you know, they were trying to be protective of themselves. And here was the principal of our school, not only standing there in the middle of the school without a burqa, um, but I remember she had um, makeup on. And another thing that Taliban discouraged women, not that they could even see their faces, but they still discouraged the woman from wearing makeup. And she had a bright red lipstick on. And I remember looking at her being so scared for her and for her safety and questioning her you know, judgment and decision to, to be out there without a burqa and uh, wearing makeup. And that was the young me. And later on, because there was such a strong image stuck in my head, and I remember it quite vividly, I look back and I know exactly what she was trying to do. She was trying to communicate a message to all the girls attending that public school. At the time, time, has, time had changed that she was at the front line, ready to lead and live in a new Afghanistan and was inviting others, other teachers and students to do the same. But that took a little time. Eventually, you would move to America. What led to that move? It was actually the same principal who nominated me for for a scholarship opportunity. And when I was in ninth grade, well, from when I started the school right after the Taliban, I was uh, my class representative and top of my class academically. And um, so, you know, my teachers and people knew about me. And when this opportunity became available, I was called into her office one day and she basically told me that I needed to go to a specific school the next day and participate in a in an exam uh, for a scholarship opportunity to study in the U.S. Because I, I was at that time, I was 14 and I had just started learning English officially, but came home and shared the information with my parents and, you know, one one test after the other. And I kept getting shortlisted. And finally, what happened was uh, I was selected to come to the U.S. as a high school exchange student for one year. Uh, this was a U.S. State Department funded high school exchange program. And the purpose was to introduce rural Americans to the Muslim world and vice versa through this one year exchange. And uh, I came to the U.S. at age 15 for that program and ended up in Wisconsin for a year with a wonderful host family. And that was in and of itself a remarkable experience for me. I mean, to think of you coming from your life in Afghanistan to the suburbs of Wisconsin Mm -hmm. and starting high school, it's, I mean, it's incredible to think of. So explain what was that experience to see this different culture and way of life? And I imagine the teenagers are, you know, you tell me vastly different or, or more the same than you would have expected. I mean, honestly, we could spend a whole hour just talking about uh, that experience alone. But before we came to the U.S., they had us watch a couple of uh, movies. The first one was, I think, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which was wonderful. And I think the second movie they made us watch, and I still don't understand why, but it was the the Mean Girls. 
(laughs) Way to scare you. (laughs) If you're not scared of the Taliban. (laughs) Yeah, this time I was really scared. But um, so I I came, (laughs) I came to um, a U.S. public school with incredibly low expectation of what the year was going to be like. But, you know, I, I was, I was really pleasantly surprised, met a lot of, a lot of wonderful, wonderful young you know, Americans who were quite welcoming. But I think, you know, there's just so much I could talk about uh, that one year, but one thing, especially because it's quite relevant to what I, what I'm doing now for Afghan girls is the, I was amazed that these girls grew up not having to feel particularly grateful that they were going to school or that they, you know, they didn't have to feel special because they were getting educated. That it was so normal that it was ridiculous to think in the same household that a brother would get better education than the sister. And uh, all of this was so fascinating for me, really, really fascinating. And I remember that having such an impact on me thinking, I, I want to, I want to work toward an Afghanistan where girls can take their education for granted. And when parents and teachers will complain about how unfair it is that these girls will take, that these girls take their education for granted, I want that future for Afghan girls. So you're 15, the exchange program ends. What happens next? I go back. I go back to Afghanistan in the summer of 2006. And, you know, I was expected to return to my high school. But to this day, I don't understand really how this happened. But I was meant to be a sophomore in uh, high school in in the U.S. And I think the school placed me as a senior to allow me access to uh, a great variety of courses at that high school. But when I went back to Afghanistan and my transcripts at 12th grade, uh, my school looked at it and said, congratulations, you're done. Uh, We can't question a 12th grade transcript from, from the U.S. So I went back and suddenly not in school and uh, had just turned 16 and I was done with high school. And so I instead, I started working with the same organization that sent me to the U.S. And during that year, there was a group of men who came to my father from from his village and basically said that they had donated their property for the community to use as a school for the girls. Um, but uh, it was an open space. They didn't have the funding to build classrooms. And my father knew of any opportunities to help. And I remember my father talking about it at home during dinner. And I basically said, wait a second, I think I might be able to help. And, you know, I remember a lot of people in Wisconsin who were eager to uh, remain in touch and support, uh, you know, any initiative that I would be involved in. So I, I went to father's village with my father and um, found myself surrounded by a group of men who were wearing uh, turbans and had long beard and wearing traditional Afghan clothing. And they looked at me as someone who who has access to possible resources and opportunities to help them. And so they, they sat down and told me uh, why it was so important for the girls in their village to get educated. And I remember feeling so uh, ashamed because I remember at that time thinking that it was men like them who were the reason girls in Afghanistan were not educated. And I was completely challenged in my own misconceptions. There were a couple of things that was really eye-opening for me. One was being challenged in what I thought about rural Afghans and rural men in particular. And here they were so supportive 
of their daughter's education. And the second thing was realizing that I grew up in Kabul, a city, and even 30 minutes outside of Kabul city, had I been born in a, you know, a few kilometers outside of Kabul, I would have had a very different life. How could this be? There must be, <laughs> there must be a reason be that not only I have these opportunities, but these experiences and what next? Yeah, sort of this realization or, you know, cognition of your privilege and and that with that, there is too much who has been given much as expected, right? You see that within yourself. And you would eventually leave Afghanistan to go to college, your second time leaving again to further your education. Tell me about this chapter. Yeah, this is... Um... <laughs> I, I returned to the U.S. in 2007, and I started my undergraduate uh, studies at Middlebury College in Vermont. And uh, I, even though I had spent a year in the U.S., I lived with very ordinary American family. I had a phenomenal window into that life in the U.S. But then I came to Middlebury College to an extent, completely unaware of liberal arts education and where I was coming, really. 2007 was uh, a key year in my life. When I started my undergraduate education during orientation, the president of college, obviously welcoming us to this incredible place and the usual, this is your opportunity. And he mentioned uh, something along the lines of how only two or three percent of Americans are lucky enough to have access to this kind of education, uh, referring to the liberal arts, uh, the education that we were about to receive at uh, Middlebury. But in 2007, the UN published a report that said how only six percent of Afghan women have the equivalent of a bachelor's degree. And as you can imagine, I was so, so overwhelmed by the power of these statistics and what each of that represented for me. And I felt the weight of that too. I, I remember simultaneously feeling incredibly lucky and incredibly guilty. Um, not just my first year as a student there, but throughout my time. And I know that shaped so much of what I did with my time there. And it was during this time and you we're still a teenager when you started SOLA, an all-girls school in Afghanistan. How does that transpire? What is the birth story of SOLA? I co-founded SOLA at the end of my freshman year, initially as a scholarship program to um, help young Afghans find opportunities in the U.S., educational opportunities, initially for high school education and then helping them move on to college and university and then help them go back to Afghanistan, where often they would be the first highly educated Afghans in whatever field they chose to focus on. And we started incredibly small, you know, four students in 2008 and, you know, finding scholarship opportunities for them in boarding schools in the U.S. You know, this was one or two or three students placed in different years. And then I graduated from uh, Middlebury in 2011, went back to Afghanistan. This was, if you remember, that very decisive year for Afghanistan, 
because it was the year the U.S. government announced a timeline for withdrawal of U.S. troops uh, from Afghanistan by 2014. And um, you may remember commentaries by Taliban saying in the West, you might have all the fancy watches, but we've got all the time. We will wait you out. And this kind of rhetoric was used um, to encourage foot soldiers uh, as well. So I, I was back in Afghanistan in 2011 as a Western educated Afghan woman and looking at this scholarship program that we had put together, continuing to look at it as a side thing that I would support. But then within that year, I realized that my what I really, really needed to do in Afghanistan was to focus my entire attention and skill sets and uh, resources to the education of Afghan women and young Afghan girls. And that scholarship program was not necessarily the best way forward. And so decided in 2012, really, to change our model from a scholarship program, a residential scholarship program, to a boarding school for girls in Afghanistan with precisely the idea that instead of sending um, young Afghans outside of Afghanistan to gain uh, quality education, bringing quality education to them in Afghanistan. Um, and that was the beginning of SOLA as a boarding school. And your vision in a country where you know women are still being married off, expected to stay home and care for siblings and cook and clean and and iron. I'm going to quote you here. Mm -hmm. You say, we are not just interested in giving the students a good education. We celebrate their bodies when society tells them to be embarrassed about their bodies. We don't tell them to hide and cover because their bodies are developing. We tell them to ride bicycles, skateboard, rock climb, and help others speak English. And then you add that one more thing we do in orientation is to have the girls sign a pledge that they will speak English at all times. How can we choose the language of one group to be the language of all? English is an equalizer. So this is a big vision from a young woman in a country that is far behind from this being a reality. What does it take to start the school? You're up against violence, tradition, poverty, all these barriers. What does it take to begin changing hearts and minds and building what would eventually be a school for hundreds of girls? The real honest answer, Kimmy, here is that what it really takes is a great dose of naivete and great passion. <laughs> That's what it takes. And I'm grateful that I didn't know at that time, because if I knew then what I know now as to you know what it takes to establish a boarding school anywhere, but especially in an active war zone, especially with all the challenges that we have in Afghanistan. I think the rational side of me would have taken over and said, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Don't. But luckily, I didn't have those voices inside me. And I did have reminders, uh, sometimes in a really polite manner, sometimes in a really direct manner from well-meaning individuals, people that I reached out to as potential supporters of the idea who said that this was impossible, but I'm so grateful that I didn't let those stop me. But there are times uh, when I get, you know, personally frustrated that I haven't done enough. And at, at the end of the day, it's um, a board, just a boarding school for girls. And there's especially uh, at a time when 
thousands and thousands and millions of Afghan girls are deprived of education and I'm laser focused on, you know, a hundred girls for now. But I, I remind myself and I tell others that Sola isn't just a boarding school. Sola, as I envision it, it's a movement. It's a movement with a long-term view for Afghanistan. It's about establishing and nurturing networks of Afghan sisterhood across the country. It's working against so many tensions that hold back the Afghan society. It's a movement that puts a young girl or young girls at the center of the model in a place where girls are taught to think last about themselves. It's a movement that helps young women get out of this mindset uh, that they have internalized and that their lives, that their education and their opportunities are second to their brothers or the men in their lives to realizing that these girls, they themselves matter and that they have potential and that not only that they have potential, but that they have a, an enormous sense of responsibility towards their country and to towards building their country. So I look at SOLA as a movement that uh, in the last uh, 10 years alone has taken really, really solid roots now in 28 of the 34 provinces in Afghanistan and one that will only grow from this as a solution not only to the education of Afghan girls, but to the many problems that Afghanistan faces today. When you lead change, especially in the environment and the culture and climate that you were in, there's always people who essentially want to destroy you. What are some of the scariest, most hurtful, or, or the things that came the closest as you had this really bold vision, which was threatening to many people? You know, when I think about the threats to the idea of solar, they're not just necessarily the kind that people would think, you know, Taliban and traditional beliefs, etc. I think for me, they've always been the easier ones to address. For me, the threat to solar or the idea of solar came from conversations I've had about solar outside of Afghanistan in places like the U.S., where really well-meaning people really smart and educated people who saw Sola as an impossible idea in a place like Afghanistan. And, you know, this, that, you know, this is not the, the declaration like this is, this is not going to work. And, you know, my God, Afghanistan is an active war zone. Why would you, why would you waste money building a boarding school in, in that country when it could be blown up in a second? And if you really think about it, they are really legitimate questions, smart questions. And people who would consider investing a good amount of money um, in this idea should and ought to ask. But at the same time, the way I have looked at it, and I've had trouble at times uh, explaining is that it's precisely because of these questions, because of what, you, what you're thinking about, that SOLA should exist as an idea or as a model. Because Otherwise, how else do you change things, you know? How else do you turn the direction of Afghanistan towards a self-sustaining country? How else do you give people a chance at dignified livelihoods and, you know, opportunities to be able to, to do things beyond themselves? The current situation, the way I see it, is a temporary setback. And in no way, you know, the future that I 
still envision or see possible for Afghanistan. We are a podcast of stories of personal transformation. And I'm interested in hearing, is there one story in particular that you can share that stands out of the type of transformation that a girl goes through at Sola? Is there a specific girl or story that you can share? I can tell you so many. It's difficult for me to pick. And it's like you come to Sola and you see these girls, especially at the critical age that we admit them at Sola at sixth grade, you know, right when they're about 10, 11 or 12 years old. It is such a critical age for especially young girls to begin with. So we each year have the immense privilege of seeing story after story of transformation that young women go through. But I will share one or two. We have several girls at Sola from Helmand province, and it's, it's been historically one of the most insecure provinces in Afghanistan. Girls' attendance in public school is just unbelievably low. And so we've had uh, girls from, from Helmand who, uh, when they went home for the winter break in Kabul, the schools were in session in Helmand province because it follows a different academic calendar. And after a year or two of being students with us at Sola, these four girls decided to go to the public school in their village and volunteer to teach. That entire public school had only four teachers. And these girls, by virtue of volunteering to teach for the next two and a half months, they doubled the number of female teachers available for the community. Not only that, but they, the word was out that these girls actually know math so much better. Um, they can explain uh, science subjects so much better. And I think the, the most remarkable thing about uh, this particular story is that we at Sola did not ask these girls um, to go volunteer at the public school to teach. When they went home for their break, they decided to do that. And I remember learning about this uh, pretty early on when we became a boarding school. and. I stopped calling these girls future leaders of Afghanistan. I call them uh, leaders of Afghanistan, already having such enormous impact in their communities. I remember a conversation with another Sola student asking her what she was doing during her break. And she, with a big smile, said, I decided to teach my mother how to read and write. And I was so touched by what she said. And I said, how, how did you decide this is what you wanted to do? And she said, my mother grew up without an education. And I remember she always, always told us how much she wished she knew how to read or write. But because she grew up in war, never got a chance to go to school. And she said, I don't want my mom to die without realizing her dream of being able to read signs and billboards when she's out shopping. So I helped her learn how to read and write. That is so beautiful. It really is. So a year ago, let's say at its peak, how many girls are attending SOLA? Nearly 100 girls from 28 of the 34 provinces in grades 6 through 11. So you are really reaching the dream and continuing to dream bigger. But this is, this is a reality as you just shared in such beautiful and specific examples of the change that's 
happening in the life of these girls and in the country. And things would yet again change and change very quickly. The end of this summer, when the Americans left Afghanistan, you shared in your TED Talk a story about a father of a girl attending Sola, and he had a request for you that in hindsight would be somewhat of a premonition of of what was to come for you and for Sola and for Afghanistan. Can you share that story? In the past couple of years in Afghanistan, as the talks intensified about engagement with the Taliban and especially the manner in which it was happening, the U.S. directly engaging with the Taliban, there was growing concern about what that meant for Afghanistan. And I had a father of our, one of our students who came to me and requested that when the Taliban come to power, that I destroy the records of his daughter because in the absence of that, his entire family would be at a greater risk of persecution by, by the Taliban for allowing his daughter to attend a boarding school. And um, he, this was December of 2019 when this uh, father of our students asked me that. And um, I genuinely believed that we would never come to a time when I would have to exercise that, but I did promise him that I would. I quite honestly didn't even think the Taliban takeover was possible even until the day Kabul fell to their control. But here we are. And you have, you know, footage of that burning all of the records of the students and the girls that you have on campus. So became not only a reality for that student, Mm -hmm. but so many other girls. How was that experience for you emotionally? I know when you spoke about it, I saw just a a pause and a pain in your face that was very real. Mm -hmm. It's painful for several reasons. You know, this was 2021 and I can't believe that that was our reality. And that was, you know, as someone who navigates very different worlds and realities between Afghanistan and the U.S., uh, knowing that just a few hours outside of Afghanistan, having physical records as a as a female student is not a big deal. And yet it can be uh, life-threatening in a moment like that. It was meant to symbolize erasing, but became another stronger desire to fight harder and not give up. I think about that moment a lot and I think of it as this is not over. Yes, this is not. Mm-hmm. And I know you've said that swift and just unfathomably quick time period and, and time lapse in which the Taliban took control. Mm-hmm. And you know, you said very poetically that swiftly that beauty turned into dust. If you can take me back to August, and I know you're limited and what you can share about the escape and evacuation of the girls and that wisely and strategically you had been quietly preparing for the worst case scenario, which is what happened. But what can you tell me about those few weeks in August? What happens around you? What are you witnessing? And whatever you can share about that journey of a escape and um, a new beginning for the girls of Sola. What I can share is that an unbelievable fear had gripped 
Afghanistan, but particularly Kabul city, a city that has already dealt with so much loss and misery. And the sense of uncertainty was quite overwhelming for people. And um, for us, the absolute important focus was continuity of learning for our students and minimizing the disruption to that, which led to our successful initially planned study abroad program last minute turned into an evacuation out of Afghanistan and a determination. Because with the study abroad program, you had laid the foundation, getting permission from the parents to leave the country. Mm -hmm. We did. And, um, you know, without being able to go into a lot of detail, we basically secured permission from our host nation to parents to, um, you know, several government support to be able to engage in a study abroad program for our students. And uh, we intended to leave Afghanistan around that same time. But with the Taliban takeover, the unexpected takeover, things changed last minute. And so it turned into an evacuation out of Afghanistan and found the entire community out of Afghanistan by August 25th and in Rwanda and our students back in class four days after we arrived. The timeline is just to witness it. August 1st, you're back from summer break. Mm -hmm. August 15, the Taliban takes control of Afghanistan. August 30th, you held your second day of class in Rwanda. How many girls did you evacuate from the country? There's uh, nearly 100 girls, our students, a group of our alumni who were in Kabul for summer breaks from their various uh, universities and graduates who had gone abroad and studied abroad and had come back to Afghanistan to work in Afghanistan. And then our faculty staff and family members of our faculty and staff. And many of the, the girls, their parents are still in Afghanistan. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. But, you know, so much of your message was the planning, the strategic planning for uncertainty that mm. you knew a new and different reality, maybe in your mm -hmm. future, not one that you wanted by any stretch of the imagination, but you knew you had to plan for it. You had contingency. And that is, mm -hmm. you know, those girls, the end of August being on their second day of school, a hundred girls is, is the testament to your commitment to them and to your planning and your forward thinking for something you desperately didn't want to happen. The most important thing is that there, there was a global village behind this effort. You know, my colleagues, our supporters, and a whole lot of people who really were committed to our success and preserving what we have really achieved so far. And so we're, we're, we're you know, we're really, really grateful to be able to do what we've been able to do. But it was also, it's also in a way what has been most challenging to communicate about SOLA. This became the most profound display of SOLA, the long-term view, SOLA, the movement, not just the boarding school. And, and here we are. I think a lot of people now see that. But, you know, I was born and raised in Afghanistan, and I grew up having a very different sense of security, safety, risk, planning, pursuing something full force with all the resources and commitment and having the agility to change course and not be overwhelmed by that change that is necessary. And I think that has been an important part of Sola's success. And that's exactly what we're in right now.
we find ourselves temporarily outside of Afghanistan, but there is in no way a hint or a sense of submission to Taliban's vision for Afghanistan. We are planning in the most <laughs> strongest sense that I could possibly say to more than double our student population in, in the years ahead. You have land in Kabul that you hold the rights to. You have cleared that land, raised the wall, built the perimeter, and going to quote you yet again, my most quoted guest, you left a light on to help you find the way home. And I know your your vision for Sola and for Afghanistan is brighter than its past. What is your dream for the future of the girls of Sola? My dream for Sola girls is that they are able to realize their full potential as human beings and live a life with great purpose. And I hope that they can um, be the light for other girls. And I know they will be. Um, every one of these girls are, as I see them, are so bright and committed and motivated, especially right now, knowing what they have left behind. I know that when the time is right, they will be among some of the most influential leaders of Afghanistan. And what do you hope listeners take away from your story and this interview? If you have you know, one message or one lesson you hope they absorb, what, what would it be? I think um, personally, if, if I hope anything they find out of this useful is um, the power of persistence and not giving up one's own dreams. But for Afghanistan, if there's one thing I want listeners to walk away with is this. So many people could be talking about Afghanistan oversimplifying and drawing conclusions such as that country could never be fixed. Look at its troubled history. Those people could never unite. I hope when people find themselves in these kinds of conversations that they catch themselves and realize that they truly are over, oversimplifying the situation in Afghanistan. I hope that they think again about the remarkable bravery of Afghan women, not of just the recent history of Afghanistan, but I am a product of the bravery of Afghan women. And I know that persists and that continues. This is another way of saying, I hope people do not look away from Afghanistan. Shabana, thank you for your time today. And I know you're incredibly humble. But I want to say that your bravery and your courage is astonishing. And, you know, not only am, am I proud of you, but deeply proud of your parents. And I think the ripple effect of their commitment to your future is, you know, when you think about it, just extraordinary that you have gone on to educate hundreds of girls and that those hundreds of girls will go on to make an impact. And so many of our listeners are in America. And, you know, you said something that educated girls grow to become educated women and educated women mm -hmm. do not allow their children to become terrorists. So, you know, the impact is far and wide, including, you know, the national security of our country. Mm -hmm. And you're making a huge difference in the world. And I know you will continue to do so. And it's just an honor to know you and to share your story. Thank you so much, Kimmy. And thank you for the opportunity. 
All right. Well, this episode will clearly be benefiting SOLA. So we will do our $2,000 charitable donation to the girls of SOLA. And we always wrap up with very quickly lightning round, which is just a fun few questions. And you just say whatever comes to your mind. (laughs) Okay. Are you ready? (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Okay. One of your top things on your bucket list. Skydiving. Biggest vice. Snoozing my alarm way more than I need to. (laughs) I can relate. Favorite city? Kabul city. Best way to spend a Sunday? Mm, Take walks. Favorite quote? Oh, favorite quote. I have have quite a few. So one one of my favorite quotes says, any person who selects a goal in life that can be fully achieved has already defined his or her limitations. I love that. And um, I can't wait to see what the future has in store for you. Unlimited possibilities. Thank you so much, Kimmy. All right. Thank you, Shabana. And take care. And thank you again for all the work you do in the world. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for making the time to listen to my conversation with Shabana today. Obviously, our charity of choice is SOLA the School of Leadership Afghanistan. I hope you will check them out and be inspired to donate. You can find them online at solaafghanistan.org. If you like today's episode or any of our episodes, I hope you will consider rating and reviewing All The Wiser. We have a goal to reach a thousand reviews by the end of the year And you taking a few minutes out of your day goes a long way in helping us get there. Thank you again for making the time to listen. And as Shabana said in the interview, please don't forget about Afghanistan. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.